patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicated to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. everybody, and welcome to another episode of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm your host, Sherman Tylowski, as usual, and thank you so much for tuning in today. We've got a very special guest coming on to this show. Before we get started, I do have a couple announcements. Um, first is that the um, uh, submission period, you could say, for for the Q&A that's coming up in May 2021 is now open. Uh, the Q&As will be uh, the, the question submissions will be open until April 30th at 6 p.m. Eastern. So make sure you know, if you have a question, make sure you submit that on time. And that way I'll be able to get through uh, as many questions as I can uh, for that upcoming Q&A episode. I'm very excited about that. We've already gotten some really good questions and I can't wait to look for more as we uh, go along the, through the end of April 2021. The second is that uh, if you haven't checked out my appearance on the What the Politics podcast, um, it's an appearance that I did about a couple weeks ago. Um, it's a great show. Uh, it's I'm trying to once again, you know, trying to get people on uh, with different perspectives to come together to share different per, uh, points of view. Uh, be sure to check out that appearance on the press tab if you go onto my website shermantylowski.com, um, and I'll and we'll be sure to link my website in the show notes description below. I'll make sure to include that in future episodes. And now I'd like to introduce our guest for this episode, Will Roosh. Will is, has spent the last 15 years as a high school government, civics, and American history teacher in Los Angeles. Uh, he's been teaching in various different schools. He's also the co-moderator of the Heterodox Academy K-12 Education Community. He's also a member of Civic Spirit, um, and he's also the host of his own podcast called Cylinder Radio, a really great show. And I'll be sure to include uh, some links that Will has provided for us so that you can check out his content. He's got a lot of really great episodes out there, and I'm just so happy to be able to connect with another podcaster, uh, but someone who I think has done a lot to uh, to expand the area of proper education towards our kids. Um, I think, think there's there's a lot of discussions, a lot of conversations about education policy, but also even deeper down, you know, how we're teaching our kids, what our kids are learning in schools. Certainly in this day and age, it's become very challenging with the pandemic and with, uh, with so many schools closed for an, a long period of time. Online learning uh, is, has been a huge challenge, but let's focus now today on uh, some of those root causes of some of these issues that we're seeing right now with regards to being able to ensure we, we're educating our kids properly. And now I'd like to welcome Will onto Friends of Fellow Citizens. Will, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, thanks for having me here, Sherman. This is a really important topic. So yeah, let's get into it. Absolutely. Well, let's start off with a bit about your background first um, before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of today's topic. So um, give us a bit more uh, details about your background and how you came about to being in the education realm. 
Yeah, uh, I graduated college. I went to Penn State, graduated in 2005, and then right away moved out to California and have been teaching full-time ever since. So first graduating class was in 2007, I think, was the first graduating class that I started teaching. I've been at three different high schools in the LA area, very diverse schools. I was at schools that were you know, 0% white, very poor, gang-infested, really sad situations. Um, and then uh, now I'm at like a, a wealthy religious private school and it's very different but it's still all los angeles and uh and i've been teaching government economics and uh for for all 15 years and then um or whatever it is and then uh and then now i've been teaching civics for uh, a class that i wrote for the last two years fantastic now tell me a little bit about kind of maybe some of the learning experiences that you've had as a teacher i mean i think in education it's um, it's certainly, you know, the focus is obviously teach kids, but are there any lessons that you have learned uh, throughout your teaching career that you think are most important to yourself? Um, oh, yeah. I mean, a, a ton. A lot of it is just um, kind of intellectual humility, though. Like, I don't have all the answers. You know, the idea of like the sage on the stage, is, it's not, it's, that doesn't, that doesn't work out. I, there's a lot, I have a certain, um, skill base and and knowledge level just because I'm older and things like that. And I, I'm interested in these topics and, and I read a lot and watch a lot and have a lot of conversations and stuff, but I still can learn uh, a ton about people and communities and things like that from my students. So a lot of times when we're trying to look for, uh, you know, ways through this, you know, ways to improve America, essentially, uh, you know, it's, it's more of like a think tank. It's more of like me being the guide and then having my students be like my minions to like, here's the problem. Here's what I think some solutions are. Go poke holes in my solutions and make it better. Okay, go run. Here's here's all the, the tools that I can kind of give you to do that. It's kind of like I, I run the first leg with the baton. I've gotten here with 38 years and 15 years of teaching. Here's the baton. Go run with it. That reminds me of a quote I heard from somewhere. I can't remember what it's from, but it says something along the lines of how everyone is a teacher in some way. The nicest person in the world and the meanest person in the world can give you something of value, uh, something that you can take as part of your learning throughout life. And I, I think you're probably a great example of someone who understands uh, that uh, learning is very much self-driven and that you have to be uh, self-motivated to pursue something that's beyond uh, your your state of comfort. It's outside your comfort zone, right? I want to now move to uh, one of our central topics today, which is about civil discourse. Um, when you look at a state of discourse, it, it, it feels like it's, it's in disarray. I mean, you're seeing you know people uh, with with their YouTube comment battles going on. Then you've got people uh, basically going out on the streets and uh, fighting one another over uh, political differences. But then it really comes down now to a bit about the education aspect, though. I just picked out a couple stats here to start off this question. Um, I kind of want to get your opinion on this. So I found this is according to the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation. They found in 2019 that a majority of Americans in every state except Vermont, I don't know why, maybe it's the maple syrup there, who knows, um, but would fail a test based on the questions in the U.S. citizenship test. So 49 out of the 50 states. Um, I'm guessing they probably 
Um, I don't know if they did DC and the five territories, but out of all the states, 49 out of 50 did not, uh, the majority of Americans did not pass. They actually failed this. A flat out majority, 57% of US citizens failed this test with a staggering 73% of Americans under the age of 45. I mean, this is a staggering, isn't it, Will, right? Um, what do you think are anything are the top kind of big issues that you think are happening as we're seeing this kind of deficit with regards to civics education? Uh, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. You know, there's so many different angles that I could take on thinking about this because I think about it all the time. But why is it that uh, the generally state standards I've taught in two different states, but um, I know what it is in several states. Generally, it's you need one semester of government, one semester. And I teach a civics class, but when I tell people that, they're like, what? They still teach civics. Like civics class is not a class in K through 12. And one semester of government, because then, then it's one semester of government, one semester of economics. It's almost nothing. So if the system is designed that way, I'm going to put on my tinfoil hat for a second. Uh, perhaps those in power do not want uh, young people to understand the system and use the system to gain power. I don't know. Um, but typically, you might know this better than I do being on Capitol Hill, but it's a lot of legacies. It's a lot of kids from certain backgrounds who have family members. They know the way the system runs and then they get kind of streamlined into it. My wife is a small business owner. No surprise. Her dad was a small business owner. You know, a lot of people are teachers. Their parents were teachers. They go in the military because they're so, you know, the idea that that government and government positions and, you know, internal efficacy can come from from anyone, from any citizen. That's the kind of the idea here. Uh they want to maybe shut that down. Now, again, that's I that I don't think that's the only explanation, but I don't want to ignore the fact that that might be a factor. I don't know, but there's other way, other avenues I could go down in explaining it as well. Sure, uh, I think you're absolutely right because one of the things that I am very frustrated about is when people say that they want to fix our democracy or they're fighting for this, but they don't even know what they're fighting for. You know, they they just kind of say these kinds of things because it sounds great, right? It's it's maybe a human nature aspect because we feel like, oh, you know, I, I need to feel like a, some kind of hero. I need to feel like I'm doing good. There's kind of a self-gratification aspect towards it. Uh, but in reality, the world of civics and politics is much more complex than just saying that you want more love in this world. That's that's not a piece of legislation. That's that's got to be work. That's got you have to work towards something very specific. Do you think that this lack of civics education really is a big contributing factor as to why people are not being very genuine on their quote unquote calls for reform and positive change? Yeah, I think that there's just we have to let kids know like that there is a process to go through this. You want statues taken down? There's a process for that. You know, you want better policing? There's a process for that. We had a walkout after uh, the Parkland shooting a couple of years ago. And the girls that organized it at my school were very passionate about this walkout. I said, okay, that's great. You get to miss class. You know, the school was like, oh, it's okay because it's an important topic. So you get to miss class. That was your sacrifice. You get to miss class. I was like, how about this? I will stay after school with you for as long as it takes, and we will write legislation. We'll write a bill. We'll contact our congressman, and we'll 
it was Karen Bass, I believe. So like we'll contact our congresswoman and we will be a squeaky wheel. We will write her office and call her office every single day until she, you know, gives us an answer about this gun, this gun bill that you that you're proposing. And then we will try and, and publish, you know, through your social media channels what she said to that. And I was like, this is going to take a lot of hours. We need to figure out good legislation. Who's in? And the girl's just like, what? no, no, let's just stick to the walkout. And I think, so, so that's, it's that grit element. It's like the civil rights movement in the, you know, fifties and sixties, like they had specific things they were arguing for specific zoning laws or whatever it is. Like there's real things. Ross Perot had that quote. That's really great. The activist isn't the one that says the river is dirty. It's the one who cleans up the river. And it's a lot easier to stand there with a sign that says don't litter than it is to go out with that stick with a spike in it and clean it up. And we need to push the youth to actually go clean it up. And I think that that's at the core of, of what's going on here. And you're absolutely right. And you bring up a really good point about giving people those options. And if people don't want to take a particular option, uh, don't want to do the hard work, and that's their choice. But they shouldn't be expecting a, a guarantee of success when they're not doing their homework, when they're not even trying to uh, do something that's a bit more challenging. There's a saying that goes to saying, oftentimes we're at a point where we're, we have to choose between doing what is easy and doing what is right. Now, those aren't the only two options all the time, uh, but it, it's true in a lot of ways. I mean, it, it does take that gut. It does take that confidence and that knowledge of how to get somewhere. And there's no doubt there's going to be roadblocks. In any system, there's going to be roadblocks, but it's all about having that courage and being able to understand those roadblocks so that you can go through and you can put together maybe a coalition of people who can help you achieve successes that are bigger than any one individual. Yeah. And, you know, I think, um, you know, Tulsi Gabbard, who, you know, was a, a congresswoman for whatever, eight or 10 years or something like that. She has been very open about the the partisan fighting and, and all that kind of stuff about the way it really works. And so, so that's been kind of eye-opening. But I think even... I agree with what you said that we choose what's easy, but I think even more than that, it just add another wrinkle. I think we avoid things that are scary. And I think that we look at, you know, courage and versus cowardice. So the way I kind of think about it is courage is there's something that you know to be right. And between you and what, and the action that you know to be the right thing to do is something scary. So it's that concept of like dragons hoard gold. So like the gold is what you want. That's the treasure. The dragon is between you. So you have to, face the dragon to get at the gold. You have to face your what's scary, what's fear what's fear inducing to get to what's right. And when you do that, that's that's courage. The one who who faces their fears to do what is right, but the one who turns away and doesn't do what's right out of fear is cowardice. And coward the the bar has just gotten so low and and people are just becoming more and more cowards. It's not like I'm going to hide someone in my attic in uh, you know 1930s Germany if they find out they're going to kill my family. It's not. It's I don't want to get called a bad name on social media. I mean, it, I mean, it, there's there the their people are just so fearful uh, that they're not doing what's right. And I think that that's an element. So it's, it could be fearful of the work. It could be fearful of being called a bad name. It could be a lot of those things. But there's just not enough courage. To, to push back. And I think that that's an element and, and teachers don't have it either. Cause you look at what's happening in the in education system. There's a lot of bad ideas going through and teachers are scared to, 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 to chime in on that. So I think that we need to instill courage in kids 
to to do what they know to be right. And, you know, morality is a whole different thing. But once you, they've established just in their heart, they know something to be right, then they, they need to to face their fears that so they can they can do what's right. Absolutely, absolutely. And and this kind of leads me to something else that you reminded me of and something that I I've always felt that has been a bit on the de- decline. I don't think there's a quantitative way to measure that. Uh and that's really on the issue of personal responsibility. It, it, let's be honest. It's it's hard to admit that we're wrong. Like I'm wrong or you're wrong or someone else is wrong. It, it's difficult because it does damage our own ego to some degree, right? Um, we we like to go around saying that we we understand the world how it is, but then we have something called cognitive dissonance, which I'm sure you're familiar with, right? Which I, I guess to put it in more layman's terms, it means a bit more of like you had your own worldview, right? And then something just comes crashing through and then kind of breaks your worldview and you don't know how to react. You start acting... Um, you start acting fearfully. You start you start calling people names. You start just acting irrationally, like you're kind of a madman. You know, um, what would you say about kind of the uh, the the virtue of personal responsibility in ed- in American education? Have you seen that uh, as a bit of a victim uh, as we discuss um, the state of civil discourse in American education? Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, one of my one of my favorite people to read is uh, Jocko Willink. He's a former West Coast commander for the Navy SEALs. And his first book was called Extreme Ownership. And it's basically the idea that whatever happens, his whole thing is like, whatever happens, good. So like you break your arm, good, because you learn from your fall or whatever. But the the extreme ownership is it's your fault. Now, the way, so I could give a, like a teacher example. is you're, A kid fails because he went to the movies instead of studying. No, it's still your fault because you didn't, do your job to basically convince him that this was important or something along those lines. And you could always argue, well, no, he has free will and he chose blah, 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 blah. But how is that going to make you a better teacher? You know, like you go to the, the, the intersection and it has a little walking guy and you just walk and then get hit by a car that runs the red light. Yes, you can just blame it on the car that hits you forever. But how is that going to make you better? And maybe next time when the work walking guy comes up, you're going to look left and look right and look left again. I mean, we have to always be thinking about getting better. And that's where the personal responsibility comes in. And yeah, I agree with you. We don't want to be wrong. And I think that one of the things that I've kind of stumbled upon is seeking disconfirmation, not confirmation bias, is I actually like being proven wrong. Um, I just posted something recently and uh, a family friend said, hey, you were really off base with this. I got right on the phone, called him up, FaceTime, like, where am I? What am I missing here? Because that's that's the that's the juice. Like if you're if you're a basketball player and your team is in this close fight, but you eke it out at the last second at a buzzer beater and you win, you're not going to go back to the locker room saying, "Hey, we gotta we gotta work on this." Nearly as much as if you would have missed that buzzer beater. So your failures are the, that's the goal for getting better. And that is another thing that's not taught in schools because of the high stakes testing. You can't fail this test because it'll mean funding. It'll mean you won't get into the college that you want to get into, all of that kind of stuff. And then kids are so failure adverse that they don't take chances. And then that's that, that goes to they don't want to take chances in, in having a discussion. I, I would love to have everyone that I am critical with come to my podcast and have a conversation. I invite so many people that disagree with me and tell me terrible things to have a conversation and they don't want to. And I think it's a real missed opportunity. I think it's a missed opportunity for me and I think it's a missed opportunity for them. 
And I think I could learn from everyone that I disagree with. But yeah, I think that I think it's a problem. I think that we're it is it's st- stuck in our ego. It's stuck in our our tribal nature. Where if I do change my mind, then what happens to my group? Because I'm in this echo chamber. You know, if my if my screen name is Vegan Guy Thirty Five, and I decide that that bacon's delicious, well, th- you know, then then who am I? Kind of thing. It, it really causes causes a lot of a uh, of cognitive dissonance, as you said. You know, and and I think that that's why you have to be aligned. What you say, think, and do has to be all aligned uh, for you to try to avoid those kind of pitfalls. I got to say that that's such a wonderful quality you have, Will, to be be able to say publicly that you want to be challenged. You want to have people put out a different perspective because you want to learn. That that's something so much, and that's so rare nowadays. Feels like. I want to go back a bit to the previous point about you know what you said of people trying to shield themselves from failure, try to shield themselves from any kind of confrontation. And more often than not, we're in this situation where we meet someone and uh, this person, regardless of whichever side of the political spectrum they're on, they're saying all these bad things about something about your perspective or your ideology. The problem is that oftentimes it's a straw man argument that they they just attack you for a view that wasn't even expressed like it's something that you'd even say and i just wonder these people like are, are these people actually listening to what they're refuting or are they just taking an imaginary argument that no one made and attacking that because they feel that their argument is just insecure and that it may not be as good as they think it is uh, something to think about but um, we just need we just need more people like you will to be able to be able to face the, the opposition face opposing views just re- recognize that sometimes oftentimes in fact vast majority of times you're facing an opponent but not an enemy um, but I want to now move a little bit towards something else if I may as a teacher you've clearly seen how the relationship between the parents and the child, influences the the child's ability to uh, succeed in your class or succeed in other uh, classes and other activities. Have you seen any horror stories where the kid basically is calling all the shots and there's almost figuratively no adult in the room where they grow up? Have you seen anything like that in your career? And what's that been like? Oh yeah. I mean, I taught in schools where like the kids, kids just had no, no structure at home. So they didn't have a bedtime. They didn't, they didn't have, they might not have had much food in the house, but whatever they did, it was junk food. And they didn't know that like McDonald's was bad for you, you know, stuff like that. So, um, yeah. So when it comes to discipline, you know, when I, I really didn't like school. I didn't like college a whole lot. I like the social element, but like the classes, uh, but I had a wonderful teacher my senior year in college uh, who was a social studies education, my, my professor. And really what she said, she she just gave like one, one nugget that it was really all I needed going into my career. And she said, um, just when you say something, mean it. And that's it. And like that, and that she's like, if you mean what you say and say what you mean, you'll be fine. And she's like, if you say, hey, if you get out your phone again, I'm smashing it up against the wall. And they get out their phone again. You got to just go, damn it. All right. You take it. You got to smash it up against the wall. You have to. You know, a lot of teachers th- think that kids will buy in if they like you. 
The aim is not to be liked. The aim is to be respected. Getting that respect because kids want structure. Children want structure. All kids, even rebellious teenagers. I spent my whole adult life around teenagers. They want they want some sort of structure because they're trying to figure out the world. The, the age that I teach, you know, through, through which is ninth through, I don't teach ninth grade. I teach tenth, eleventh, and twelfth grade. You're not a, when you come in as a ninth grade, you're kind of a child, and when you leave after graduating, you're kind of an adult. So you do that transition while I got you, and in that, the reason you rebel is because you're saying, "Hey, like, okay, so I have a six year old and a four year old. My kids don't have any freedom." They don't. I tell them when to eat, what to eat, when to go to bed, where they can go, blah, 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 blah. But they're safe, you know? And then as you become an adult, really all an adult is, is someone who makes up their own decisions for themselves. That's really all it is. So you're trying to figure that out. And the only way you can really figure out what is a good decision that you can make is you have to be able to make those decisions. And then when life bites you in the butt, you go, oh, okay, I made the wrong decision. A lot of times parents, that's scary for them because they don't want their kid getting bit in the butt. They don't want them falling. But you have to give them that structure so they understand that the world has consequences. And I always try to do punishments or whatever, whether it's with my own kids or my students, that are natural. There are natural consequences to this. I don't need to punish you on top of it. Like you didn't study. You got an F. I'm not giving you a detention after that. An F is, is an F. You make that decision. Like, And then I just I think that that's really important for helping kids to understand the world because then what we see is like – whether it's the sixth and it's the dudes who are, you know, MAGA, Magistan cult, you know, charging the capital, or it's the stuff over the summer and it's the woke, the woke cult, you know, going after things. Either way, they're kind of LARPing, you know, they're live action role playing these like things wearing masks. It feels like a video game and they don't understand that there's real consequences. I don't know if you saw the video of the woman who was shot on the sixth, but a guy had his gun out and she leaped through the window as if it wasn't a real gun. Like it was like, she clearly didn't understand the consequences of the real world. And we're so advanced as a society. You know, most of us have not seen, unless you live in a really tough neighborhood, you haven't seen someone be killed in front of you. We're so removed from the real, the harsh realities of where food comes from and all that kind of stuff that, that we don't understand it. And I think that's a, that goes back to what your, your point was of, of these kids need structure. They need discipline. They need that stuff. And, and it's, it's cruel to not give that to them. Absolutely. I would argue also that uh, teenagers definitely want authority because you see it all the time. You you see a lot of teenagers, especially in those small groups, at least when I went to school, I used to see these groups of friends. You can clearly tell who was the leader and how things worked. I mean, there's kind of uh, an informal structure of things, but people just want to have some kind of structure and they want to be able to fit in um, and to be able to satisfy uh, their their own liking or their own status, if you want to put it that way. Now, the other thing is that it feels like some political leaders also kind of want us to not be able to tell what's right or what's wrong because that way they can get away with it. Now, this is what I've been telling folks, which is if you can't just say that we don't, we can't, we don't need a, a system of right and wrong. We can just kind of go wherever we want, you know, as the just let free will kind of rule. Uh, our entire society. Well, the problem is, you know, free will that exists in good, both good people and bad people. And when you conflate them, when you don't have a society where you strictly say murder is wrong, or stealing is bad, or it's illegal to 
break into the capital. It, it, th- things like that. These are the lines that we have to draw, and as a society, we have to enforce them because that is the way we're going to be able to handle uh, the, the the structure of our system, and so that we can have those avenues of peaceful uh, transitions in power or peaceful uh, changes in progress in our society. Give us an impression of your overall relationship with parents and how that kind of contributes to the overall learning environment you try to provide so that kids can be able to succeed in the future. Yeah. I mean, I've had pretty positive interactions with parents over my 15 year career. I mean, there's a few parents that would say, you know, why aren't you teaching enough, um, you know, black history, for example. And then I would just make a long list of all the things we do in every unit that has to do with, you know, studying black Americans and stuff. So they're like, Oh, I didn't know that. You know, I, I wrote a, a Simpsons sociology class one time and a parent was just like, Oh, so now they're teaching the Simpsons in school. And I was like, well, let me break down to you what sociology is and show you the textbooks and how it aligns. And they're like, Oh, okay. So I think it, it's the same thing I do on my social media is, you know, I say things that people don't like, but I'm, I'm batting damn near a thousand on the people that want to sit down with me and explain to me why they don't like it. And then I have a conversation. It just happened five minutes ago with my family friend, as I said, like we come out, we, there, I'm, I'm not like a frivolous person. Like I'm doing this, especially when it comes to my job. You know, I'm very calculated about what I'm doing, why I'm doing it. I thought about it a lot. So I kind of have my ducks in a row. And it doesn't mean that I'm, I'm going to be I'm going to be right all the time. I'll definitely be wrong. But I can at least bring you into where my thinking is. And it's rooted in good pedagogy. And and uh, and I always try to, you know, look at the other side on on you know, counter, if I think it's a good idea, I'm always seeking disconfirmation. So I'm, I'm, I'm my, I'm my harshest critic. So I think that by the time the parents get to me, they, they, it's, I, I've, I got it, my stuff kind of down. And then if they want to protest about something, I'm pretty good at explaining myself. So I've actually been, been lucky at that. I think what happens is a lot of teachers might be like right now might be teaching this, you know, social justice in quotes stuff and they they don't they don't know it really well it's just it's a it's a it's packaged really nicely and they put it out there and then when a parent gives a little bit of pushback the teachers aren't even sure how to defend it and i think that's you know i kind of go against the some of the social justice stuff and i get harsh criticism but the it doesn't they don't want to interact with me because i have my ducks in a row about how to really bring about social justice about what laws what bills I would support that would bring about social justice as opposed to just maybe putting a black box on my Instagram or something like that. And then they don't want to really interact with that. So I think it just comes down to being well-prepared, having, you know, doing your homework. I'm obsessed with what I do. You know, like it really is an obsession. I love it. I love it more than anything. You know, people say, if you weren't teaching, what would you be doing? It's like, no, I'd be, I'd be teaching, bro. Like there's nothing else I can do. I'd find a way to teach something. So, um, so because of that, I'm, I'm kind of immune from a lot of the pitfalls that other teachers have fallen into, I think. Well, it definitely sounds like you're doing quite a bit of important homework. Uh, even teachers do homework, something that only took me several years to realize. I say several years, basically almost my entire life. <laughs> um, but I, I always remember those kind of collective myths about teachers. Uh, I think one of the funniest ones I remember was uh, when kids used to – think that your know, teachers assign homework and then we're all doing as we're all doing homework and the teachers are kind of just laughing in the background I was like ha, 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 you know they, they're gonna uh, correct our our papers and basically splash a huge 
uh, amount of red ink, sometimes even crimson ink, which kind of scared me a little bit. Um, but <laughs> it was in, in yeah. any way, it, it's it was a good exercise uh, when I was a kid to just get used to uh, a lot of a lot of this 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 process of getting to know realize your mistakes and not being afraid of of making those corrections and speaking to the teachers about them you know asking follow up questions about the, the things to learn so that it's not just a simple here's your grade it's kind of stamped on your report card and that's it you know there's there's always something more to it so I I hope that I hope that experience is is far wider than just mine, but I just wanted to kind of throw that out a little bit. Yeah, um, but if I could chime in on the red pen thing, actually, you know, I think I think that we need to teach grammar and stuff like that. You know, I sat in on when my wife was hiring people for like front desk at her salon, and uh, the kids couldn't or kids they were in their twenties they couldn't formulate an email they didn't know grammar and spelling it's a real problem. But there's it can go too far where you worked really hard, you poured your heart out into some writing and then it's all marked with red pen telling you that it's terrible. Like that's doing damage too. So, you know, teachers, you know, you can, it's, it's a complicated dance you have to make between helping give the students the skills and structure that they need, but not crushing that creative, innovative spirit that young people have inside of them. And, you know, school always exchanges this creativity for compliance. And I don't want that either. I don't want someone with amazing grammar and has nothing to say. So you have to find that balance. And I think that's, I think the red pen, as good of, as good as it's been, I think it's been really damaging as well uh, to a lot of people. You make a good point. I, I got to agree with you on that. Uh, grammar is really essential and does kind of bother me a little bit when, uh, I miss a, a comma or two here and there, and sometimes I think the the red ink just kind of makes it look like I committed a crime against humanity or something. You know? <laughs> um, but anyway, I want to now move on to something a little bit different now, which is about discourse in our schools. We're seeing a number of very troubling signs of discourse being suppressed because people don't agree with it or people are being offended it for some uh, by it for some reason we've seen a lot of coverage about this in higher education but i want to get your thoughts about what you think is happening um in the middle and the high school levels especially when it comes to this idea that we need to protect quote-unquote protect our students from bad speech or hate speech as they call it all right, I have a lot of thoughts on this. So, um, all right, so let me just go on a quick rant. So the First Amendment applies to government action, but at what government and big tech, social media, they're in bed together. I just saw the, you know, Facebook donated $20 million, I think, last year in, in, in lobbying. So, so, so they're, they're kind of one and the same, but they can get away with censorship because they say they're a private, private business. So you can always say, you know, refuse service type of thing. But What's happening, part of the reason why it's conservative is like Twitter, one of the, the big hot button issues, and I will get into education, but let me just go down this road a little bit because I think this is important. Uh, the transgender issue. Now, I've had four different transgender people on my podcast. I've had trans students. Um, you know, I, it's, it's, it's a complicated issue. Okay. And what Twitter and social media companies did is there's two different ways you can misgender someone. Okay. There is a biological misgendering, and then there's an ideological misgendering. So if you take Caitlyn Jenner, and you say Caitlyn Jenner is 
a woman that is biologically misgendering her. Okay, biologically misgendering, saying that, you know, you know, as far as like chromosomes and things like that. Okay, it's a fact that her sex is female. Okay, um, you can misgender her also in an ideological way and say that she's a man. And that is ideologically misgendering her when that's offensive to her and things like that. So Twitter had to make a decision. Which one do we go with? And they went with the ideological. So now the conservatives that are, you know, by, by nature, conservative is like, you know, there are, there are these long held um, uh, ideas that we fought for and, you know, like order, the idea of order. We need boxes. We need to categorize things. And uh, saying that, you know, when you can be deplatformed for stating a scientific fact that that is a dangerous concept. And, and, and I get that, that, that argument, you know, um, the biggest censorship that really bothered me was unity 2020 was this push to try and get, um, get a, a different presidential candidate other than Joe and, uh, and Donald. And, uh, and they got banned off of Twitter and Facebook and other platforms for saying hashtag no to Trump and Joe or something like that. Like you know, promoting a third party option. They got banned for that. And it's, that's very strange. And they didn't give it, get an explanation or anything. You know, Gina Carano getting getting banned for comparing political viewpoints to Nazism. But then just recently on Bill Maher, a former um, senator, um, Heidi Heitkamp, I think is her name. She said, you know, Gina Carano is a Nazi. And she just will just say this over and over again. And if you deplatform Gina Carano, she can't defend herself. So then, and I don't, I'm not saying she was deplatformed necessarily, but like if you would. And then, and then. You just say that enough and it's like, well, what did she actually say? So it's censorship's a real problem. Okay, so those are like my examples of how it's a real problem. Going to the school, how this happens is, again, the teachers don't like pushback. They don't like pushback. They like compliance. What, what makes a, Sherman, what makes a good student? What do you think like a good student in high school? It's someone who does what they're told. Remember this stuff, write it on the test. This person remembered the stuff and wrote it on the test. They come in on time. They leave when the bell rings. They don't pack their stuff before the bell rings because I told them not to. And that's a good student. And anyone that pushes back against that is smacked. You know, it's like, hey, stay in line. Stay in line. And that's, I think that we're, we're, we're going to fall into categories then of people who say like, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. I will stay in line. And then other people that are just like, F that. No. No, I'm not going to stay in line. I'm not going to do this. And those are the people that are pushing back. And they might be pushing back on the left. And they might be pushing back on the right. But but that is where this is coming from. And it's, it's again, instead of a teacher, it's Jack and Sundar. Sundar um, at Google and Mark saying, hey, no, you got to comply with our rules. Stop making this so complicated. Like when Tim Pool brought up this transgender issue, Jack Dorsey was like, I don't know. It's like... Stop making it complicated the same way that a teacher would be when you're like, well, hold on, Mrs. or Mr. Teacher. But didn't this happen? And doesn't that go against what you're saying? And it's like, don't threaten my authority. Just let me just teach my class. You know, I think I'm watching these patterns come up over and over again. So I think that's how it relates to the education system. But I haven't really thought about that, um, how it applies to my own career area. But I think that's what it is. Uh, I'd say parents and teachers and even a lot of kids with them would agree that this model of being an ideal student, of following 
every single rule, that doesn't make you stand out as an individual, does it? And it certainly doesn't promote this whole idea that there's people who are, for whatever reason, are going to disagree with you, are going to have a slightly different point of view, maybe an add-on point of view to what you're saying, because that really is the real world. You you, You don't know, when you first meet someone on the street, you don't know where that person is coming from. You need to be able to not only harbor the characteristics of being open-minded in the sense of just being able to allow people to express their point of points of view, but also to be able to have arenas where you can have this conversation. I think that's why I have my podcast, you have your podcast. There's a number of people out there who are uh, promoting arenas of discourse because that's feels like it's being lost. It feels like now you're it's it's all about a discipline camp, a boot camp, if you like, uh, under uh, the the thumb of you know, teacher X, and I'm not saying every teacher's like that. I'm just saying that overall, it seems the the environment is kind of closing in. You know, it, it feels like you you turn you turn almost anywhere else. You feel like school. You think would be the place where you can have all those active conversations and be able to express all kinds of different points of view and be able to challenge, be able to be challenged on those views. But it doesn't seem like that's what the reality is happening right now on the ground. You know, there's, there's people are, are like allergic to nuance. You know, like I think all of those guys, you know, Mark and, and Jack, when they started, they're like, yeah, it'll just be a way to connect with people. Just, you know, don't be an a-hole. And, but that's, it, you don't understand morals. I was just in a faculty meeting and I heard um, some people at my school saying, uh, you know, we have an obligation to teach these kids morals. I was like, hold on, because this is an area that like I work with Jonathan Haidt and like, you know, I, I understand moral foundations theory. I mean, I'm like, hold on. What what morals are you talking about? Are talking about from a religious standpoint? Are we talking about from a social science standpoint? Are we talking about from an ideological standpoint? Is eating meat moral? Like this is complicated stuff. And the only way you're going to understand what is more. I mean, this goes back to the big dawn of man. And if you, if we need to figure out, I'm not a moral relativist. I'm saying that this is complex and we need to talk about what morality we're going to be basing this on, but that only happens through the discourse, through podcasting and long form podcasting and having discussions. I mean, the debate rules are, it's absurd. It is absurd the way that like presidential debates are done. I mean, just soundbite, 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 put out the soundbite. It's intentionally vague. You go to college campuses, people aren't really challenging these thoughts. They're still stuck in this echo chamber bubble. And they're just, and when they get met with another uh, outside opinion, it's like, that's like a threat. It's like a threat to them, you know, psychological backfire effect. And then they want to fight it as opposed to just being open-minded. I mean that, yeah, that's what college is supposed to be, right, Sherman? Like it's supposed to be this place where you just question everything, you know, sit in a dorm room, smoking a joint. Like what is the universe? What is right? What is wrong? Like that's supposed to be college, but now it's not. And like the, the difference between an activist and an, and, uh, and activism and education is education means you don't know the answer and you're trying to find it. Activism is I know the answer and I'm trying to implement it. And there's a lot more activism than there is education on college campuses. There's a lot more activism than there is education in a lot of different professions. And that's a problem. It's, I mean, it's even found its way into the medical industry. When they said that um, racism was a bigger um, disease than, than COVID, 
I mean, I remember I heard John McWhorter just be like, I'm out. Now I'm, now I'm out from this because I can't. These are doctors saying this. This is they're 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 ideologically possessed, and and it's a it's a real dangerous thing when you can't even see the world clearly. Then you definitely can't come up with the right moral kind of avenues to go down. It's concerning. God help us if every aspect of society is just politicized. I I don't want to see that world. I don't think anyone truly does. But people do it intentionally, unintentionally, and we we need to get the word out. Um, God help us if we can't be able to express different points of view, even if it's the minority. Oftentimes, we forget that maybe the minority can be the majority at some point in time. Not on not on every issue, but on certain issues, uh, it it has changed. the The time paradigm has changed for particular perspectives. Let's. Let's keep that in mind before we you know, immerse ourselves in bubbles of of uh, in college campuses and and other places where we're not challenged on our views. We need to be informed. We need to have those difficult conversations, but those conversations are can reap a lot of benefits. Uh, just like how Rome wasn't built in the day, solutions are not built in the day. Sometimes you're going to have many, many conversations, but to be able to be in that habit, I think is one of the things that I wanted to get people to uh, understand and be able to apply uh, in their lives as much as possible. Well, you're one of the pioneers of education that we really need right now. Uh, I can't express that enough. And you brought up something earlier, which is about intellectual humility. Uh, Tell us what it is. And why it's significant for you and for how we can proceed forward in making our education system better than it was before. Yeah. Well, thank you for the compliment, too. Um, you know, like I said, I'm just I'm the first step, you know, and then it's like I put this out there. Those who can't do teach. I'm not doing it. <laughs> I'm putting it on you guys and you guys go off and do it. I have I came up with these three pillars about how to co- have good conversations and how to move forward during this time. And I just kind of came up with these on my own from a whole bunch of things. And it's uh, intellectual humility, genuine curiosity, and grace. And I think if you apply those things, then we'll, we'll get pretty far. And intellectual humility is you might be wrong. And that's really a, that's at the at the end of it, you know, you might be wrong. I was listening to a, Jordan Peterson was at Oxford doing a talk. And you know, he's been hypercritical of the Canadian government and Justin Trudeau. And he got asked, uh, you know, if you could ask Justin Trudeau one question, what would it be? And he kind of like laughed. He's like, oh. And, and then he was like, his question was essentially, is there any possibility that what you're doing could be damaging? You know, and, and, I, and what that brought up is, for me is like, that's, that's what it is, is so many people are certain that they're right. They're certain of it. And they're not. I mean, I mean, there's, I mean, there's, there's so many instances, sometimes they are, but a lot of times, or even if they are right they they don't know it all. Like you said, like, like there's so much nuance that they're missing. So you might have great talking points. I think conservatives, Charlie Kirk and people like that have great talking points, but they're missing stuff. They're missing something about there. They have a statistic, but what they're not looking at is the why. You might have a statistic, you know, 70% of black children are born in single parent households. Yeah, but why? Is it because that, you know, they're locked up for, for nonviolent marijuana crimes? You know, is that is that possible? You know, that they're being locked in cages? Like, and what what to what degree? 
you know, like, uh, you know, there's so many elements that are here that are in play and they're just, so the either people either have their talking points and they're sticking to that, or they have their strong views and they're sticking to that. And they're not even thinking about where they could be wrong. They're not even thinking about what they could be missing because why would you do that? Again, it attacks your ego, but what I really am trying to advocate for to teachers and to anyone who's trying to, you know, fight in this, in this fight us through this for this country. I love this country. Let's get through this is this, the, the, the idea that, that, you know, you, you want to be proven wrong. What am I missing here is so important. And if we just do that more and just, and just open up our minds to that more, I think we'll get, I think we'll get further. Absolutely. Uh, The pillars you outlined are so critical to just building a habit as well, as you were pointing out a little bit earlier about getting used to challenging people, but not for the sake of revenge or for a soundbite, but to do so because you want to have those active conversations. You want to have those debates and you want to also have accountability too, which I'm I'm so happy to hear. And I hope that we can we can build that more as a bit more of a habit across our education system, and that way our kids can be ready to engage uh, in those the challenging interactions, but hopefully be able to gain uh, the learning benefit out of having those particular habits. Now, as we come to a close for our episode, um, as you know, Will, uh, for Friends and Fellow Citizens, we have the six pillars of Washington's principles that he outlined in his farewell address. So if you were to take maybe two or three of these principles and apply them to our discussion and your career and your philosophy, uh, which ones would you pick and why you chose those particular values? Um, Those are all awesome. Um, And they're so American. Uh, So I just, uh, I think patriotism, I think is really important, you know, to understand the idea of what America is. America is an idea. America is inclusive. I love Frederick Douglass. Um, You know, he, he recognized that that when the constitution was written, he wasn't included, but he said, these words will include me, you know, essentially. And, uh, and I think that that's the way out of this is the American way. That's the way out of all of this craziness and all this stuff. And then gets to unity is, that's that's how how we unify is also crucial to this. We're the United States, but but we need each other. The Republicans need the Democrats. The progressives need the conservatives. You we if it's just conservatives running the show, we will fail. If it's just progressives, we will fail. So we need each other and stop looking at these people like they're your enemy and start looking at them as someone to teach you something. And also someone that that is going to be there to buttress your ideas. So you're going to try and move forward with your ideas. So you know them to be right, but then they're going to know them to be right. And they, they, the clash, the clash is a beautiful clash if it's done properly. And our founding fathers did not like each other. They did not agree, but they knew that they needed each other to win. So to, to, to move this country forward. So, you know, Madison and Hamilton disagreed, but they worked together. Madison and, uh, and, uh, and Jefferson disagreed. And, that's where George Washington was so cool because he was the unifier. I mean, he was unanimously picked, uh, you know, in the Electoral College. And when he left, what did he say? Be careful of the factions. Watch out for the political parties to divide us. And he was right. And I don't 
I don't know how we get that back, but I think, I think it's, it's social science and I think it's long form podcasting and because of big tech, because of the tech companies that I can't stand, but you, including in that is Zencaster. And you and I can have a conversation. We can put this out there and there seems to be a market for it. People are, are recognizing this more and more and more the need to unify as a way to, to save this wonderful country. Cause it is a wonderful country and you know, it's a wonderful country. Anyone that says that it's not, or it's never been, or is founded on genocide and oppression. Well, every country was founded on genocide and oppression. So, you know, which one is getting us out of it? That's, you know, that's the idea. Everyone has a, has a checkered past. Our country is no different. So how do we move forward with that? That needs to be the focus. People go through unbelievable hardship just to land on our shores. Still, still happening. So there's something valuable here, and I think it's worth fighting for. And the way you fight is by, by unifying, oddly enough. That's an excellent answer. Really amazing. I'm so glad you brought up this idea that America really has an exceptional side to it. In fact, many exceptional sides to it. Uh, We need to keep that. I believe if we believe America is exceptional, we must keep it that way. Will, you've brought so much insight into this episode Tell us more about Cylinder Radio and how people can learn more about what you do and keep track of what you're doing uh, in your particular field. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I was doing this kind of stuff for a long time. And then uh, my wife was like, put it on social media, put it on social media, put it on social media. And I was like, people don't care. But um, people do. And and so I started a, a, a social media, I started an Instagram coming up on almost three years ago. And then I started my podcast about two, a little over two years ago. And it's all about just civil discourse. What I was, I was tired of not all the stuff that we're talking about, Sherman, like let's talk it out is I, now I have a platform and I would just reach out to people that I disagreed with or people that had a unique perspective on the world. And I would bring them on and just have a discussion. And that's what it was all about. It's cylinder radio because it's like different angles from one angle. It's our rectangle the other angle it's a circle but it's actually complicated so i've had on you know just like take transgender issue as because i talked about that earlier like four different transgender people one of them was a hardcore trump supporter that went to the capitol on the sixth transgender okay one of them is it is an activist um trans female the other one is an activist trans male the other one is kind of a center libertarian who has traditionally voted republican like they're so, so people go, wait a second, what? There's a 13-year-old black kid who's a Trump supporter. There was a, a Scientologist vegan Trump supporter. Like I just, I, one of the, I did do a lot of Trump supporters partially because I thought Trump supporters were just this monolith. You know, I've had on a, a bunch of black uh, conservatives because again, you know, black people are held up as some sort of monoliths. You know, I've had on abortion doctor and then a pro-life feminist. Like all these things that people just go like, man, I don't know what to think. It's like, yes, that's, yeah, we're individuals. We're unique and we're all equal because of the 14th Amendment and we're all equal under the law and just under this flag. And that's what's so beautiful about it is, is the, the uniqueness and the individuality of, of this country. So um, on social media, uh, Instagram is what I use. It's probably my biggest platform where I put my ideas out there. It's uh, just my name, Will Roosh. Uh, and that's fun to grow because it does get me into certain conversations and stuff like that. And I get to you know, work out my 
thoughts on current events in real time with the help of a, of a whole network of people that now I've built up that are also very, very politically diverse. So I got the conservatives saying, hey, you're missing this one. And I had the liberals saying, hey, you're missing this one. And it's so good because I'm developing good ideas. I mean, it's like it's like an education for me just using social media. It's been really great. So I welcome anyone that thinks that listen to this and said, I am off. Like, let's have a conversation. I'll do an Instagram live with you. I will have an Instagram live with anyone that thinks that I have really bad, dangerous ideas because then maybe I'll learn something from it. Great stuff. Well, I will make sure to link you know, your social media and website in the show notes below. Will, I want to thank you so much for coming on to this episode. You brought so much insight uh, into about 56 minutes or so of speaking with us. Uh, you've been such, again, once again, such a pioneer for education. We really need people like you. We need that kind of mentality to be able to get people to grow the the discourse world because it, it feels like it's shrinking. Uh, so I, I just want to express my appreciation towards you, and I want to thank you so much for coming on to Friends and Fellow Citizens today. Well, thank you for bringing me on, and and I am I'm very worried about our future in Washington D.C. So if you have a uh, if you're going for a career in politics, I'll I'll help out any way I can, Chairman. I think that if we have more leadership like like you, then um, then I think we'd be in a lot better place. So yeah, I'm going to support you any way I can. Well, I'm very grateful for your support, Will. Uh, you've been such a wonderful guest today on our episode, and really, really appreciate your time spending with us here in the Friends and Fellow Citizens community. And that'll wrap up our episode today. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. We had a wonderful conversation. Uh, make sure, once again, you subscribe and share this podcast uh, with your friends and family if you haven't already. Again, I really appreciate all of your support every single day. Have a great rest of your week, and I'll see you next time at the next episode of Friends and Fellow Citizens. Take care and so long.